Bienvenidos. This is a podcast that explores Latinx media and culture in its many forms. I am Dr. Rojo Robles. And I am Dr. Rebecca Elsalois. And we are Latinx and Latin American Studies professors at Baruch College in New York City. In this podcast, we will analyze Latinx film, television, literature, art, and cultures. We will consider how these works are perceived, analyze them, and investigate the real-world reflections and implication of that work on Latinx cultures in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Latinx Visions. Welcome back, everyone. Bienvenidos, bienvenidas, bienvenides. Before we get into this episode specifically, we figured we'd address the overall theme for the season. While we always strive to make our episodes as intersectional as possible, we have created central themes around which we choose our media and discussion topics. So as you may have noticed, the first season focused on Latinas and the second looked at Afro-Latinidad. This season, our focus is going to be on the LGBTQIA plus Latinx communities and queer Latinidad. And within the context of queer Latinidades, we will be discussing topics such as uh, sexual and gender descent, fluid and unstable identities regarding the male-female gender binary, countercultures and counter-discourses and narrative, of course, queer nightlife, intersectional activism, and challenging patriarchal normative scripts of Latinidad. As with the previous season, we will be discussing both television and film today. Unlike with the previous season, we decided to each tackle one of the two forms of media instead of both of us covering both. We still expect to have a back-and-forth conversation on each of the works. It's just that these times Rebecca will lead the conversation on television and I will lead the conversation on film. All right, so let's get into it. So I'm going to get into the television aspect. And when it comes to queer Latinx representation in television, there are a handful of characters out there. I would not say a lot by any stretch of the imagination, but there's a handful. You know, we actually, we already discussed Elena from One Day at a Time in our season on Latinas, and we talked about Blanca and um, Angel from Pose in our season on Afro-Latinidad. There are also other characters that appear in ensemble shows, you know, Rosa from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Anna and Jessica from Hentified, Oscar from The Office, Jim from Our Flag Means Death. You know, uh, there's, there's a bunch of them, but... There are fewer shows that center around queer Latinidad or that have at least a queer Latino, Latino, Latinx character as the titular character. So far, that is very, very strange. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the few that does is Love, Victor. And while the cast is not fully Latinx, the main character, Victor, and his family are. So for today, I will be discussing the ways in which Love, Victor provides a necessary and relatively positive, but sometimes overly safe, coming out slash coming of age story for a gay Latino teen. And I will be discussing the 2019 independent film, The Garden Left Behind. This film follows Tina, played by trans actor Carly Guevara, a Mexican trans woman who moved to New York City when she was a child and as an adult lives with her grandmother, Eliana, a loving figure that at times has a difficult time understanding Tina's transition and overall existence as a diasporic working woman. During the film, Tina must struggle with her immigration status and socioeconomic and medical barriers in her attempts to transition and make ends meet. Mm -hmm. She also navigates a troubled love relationship with a cis man and general societal tensions and repressions regarding her trans assistance. So Love, Victor. Love, Victor, it's a teen drama comedy television series. It's very, you know, you've seen some clips from it anyway. I know it's very teen-centric. Um, it's a series that was originally made for streaming. I think initially they made it for Disney+, Plus, but then it aired on Hulu, and now it is also on Disney+. Plus. I don't know. Disney owns everything, so. <laughs> the series premiered in June 2020, and it ended just uh, this year in June 2022, with a total of three seasons and 28 episodes. The show stars Michael Cimino as Victor Salazar, a half Puerto Rican, half Colombian American teenager who has, at the start of the first season, recently moved to Atlanta, Georgia from Texas. 
Victor lives with his parents, Isabel and Armando, played by Ana Ortiz and James Martinez, his sister Pilar, played by Isabella Ferreira, and his brother Adrian, played by Mateo Fernandez. The series is set within the same universe as the 2018 romantic comedy film Love, Simon, which I'll discuss a little bit more in a moment, but just to kind of get us set in the location. And the series even addresses this connection by having Victor be in contact with Simon and even visit him at one point. Simon is now a college student living in New York, and they connect initially through social media, but eventually in person. That's very interesting how like the, the TV show is kind of like interacting with other audiovisual media. Yeah, yeah. As part of his journey of self-discovery, Victor deals with challenges at home and at school while simultaneously questioning his sexuality and trying to figure out how that can coexist with his cultural and religious upbringing. So, Love, Simon. I feel like I can't really talk about Love, Victor without at least addressing what happened in Love, Simon. And Love, Simon is not a queer Latinx story <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. But there are some important distinctions that need to be brought up. Love, Victor is somewhat of a spinoff from Love, Simon. And, you know, as I mentioned, the film was released in 2018. And it was actually one of the first romantic comedy films that I remember seeing in the theater that was pretty mainstream and not centered around pain and trauma for the protagonist. It was actually known for being the first film by a major Hollywood studio to focus on an LGBTQIA plus teen love story. But it was a safe film, a very safe film, in that it featured an upper middle class cis white gay teen boy who's accepted by his family and friends with very little conflict. And honestly, the conflict they had wasn't around him being gay. It was around other issues. You know, it was nice. Don't get me wrong. Like, it was nice to see that sort of happily ever after gay love story on the big screen. You know, we need those positive stories as well. But it was almost a little too idyllic in some ways. Love, Victor, on the other hand, gives us a new perspective, and it's set just a couple years in the future. You know, Victor is a new student at Creekwood High, the same school that Simon attended, but we see him face different kinds of challenges at home and at school than those that we saw in the film. While both boys struggled with coming out, Simon knew from the start of the film that he was gay, and Victor struggles throughout the first season to identify his sexuality. He had to first work through that before he's able to even consider coming out to friends, family, etc. When we go back to the film, in the opening line of the film, Simon tells the audience that he's just like us, right? <laughs> he says, I'm just like you. And then he describes his family. He's gifted a, a car by his parents in the very opening scene. Can't relate. Uh, he also mentions that his parents were high school sweethearts who are happily married. His mom was the valedictorian. His dad was the all-star quarterback. He's definitely not like me. <laughs> <laughs> right? He likes his sister, who's like a big, you know, I mean, I like my sisters now, but growing up, maybe not as much. <laughs> Victor's parents, on the other hand, have a slightly different relationship. They, they also knew each other in high school, but their story was different. You know, they stayed together because they got pregnant and they had to grow up fast. Victor is from a working class family. Rather than live in a large house like Simon, his family lives in an apartment building. His father's an electrician. His mother is a stay-at-home mom who, well, at least temporarily, teaches piano on the side. It seems to me that uh, Love, Victor kind of like uh, uh, because of Latinidad, it gives us like a more realistic circumstances. Yeah. What do you think about that? I mean, at first I was worried that they were going to just like use the Latinidad as an excuse to make him working class that like, oh, Latinos are working class and white people mm -hmm. are upper middle class. But I do think they they don't dig into that at all in the sense that You know, his neighbor, who becomes his best friend, is uh, a white kid who lives in the same apartment complex. So they're not sort of separating Latinidad out from whiteness in terms of the the socioeconomic status, at least not deliberately. You know, they mm -hmm. the black characters in the show are the wealthier characters in certain elements. So they, they mix that up a bit more. I think. But yeah, that was a concern when I first started watching. I'm like, oh, of course, he's Latino. He's going to be working class. Like, we can't 
we don't want to like play into a stereotype, mm -hmm. but I think they they actually find that balance quite nicely. Mm -hmm. Another core difference between the two is that Simon comes from a secular or even atheist family, while Victor's family uh, are practicing Catholics. You know, Simon's afraid to tell his parents in the film, but both of them accept him pretty early on. His mom, like instantly, just, yep, okay, cool. And his dad, you know, walked away initially, but like the next day he's like, hey, I'm sorry I walked away. I just, everything's cool. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> Victor's story, on the other hand, is a little more complex. And I'm going to talk about two aspects of that in particular. And one is machismo and the other is religion. We end season one with Victor coming out to his parents and we don't see the reaction. He's been out to his friends for a little bit, um, maybe an episode or two. But this is when he comes out to his parents. They're both in denial at first. His dad, though, comes around pretty quickly. You know, he struggles. It takes him a little bit. He's not like instantly, oh, okay, great. I accept you. But even though he struggled, it was nice to see him be the the parent who's like, I get it. And and I imagine it was probably a nice change of pace for the actor, who's the same actor who played Elena's father in One Day at a Time, who was very unaccepting, right? <laughs> <laughs> El hombre se reivindicó. <laughs> <laughs> Give him that opportunity. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Victor's mother, on the other hand, struggled longer. It took her actually most of the second season to come around um, and accept her son and understand, you know, that it wasn't something that he chose, that it wasn't something that he was doing to her. And it wasn't something that was inherently a sin, which was, I think, a big part of her hang up was she was afraid for his soul his well-being <laughs> the show uh, also like presents like a, a a support group for parents is that right yeah yeah and what's really interesting is that the father starts attending that really early on there's a point where the parents split up mm -hmm. which of course also doesn't happen in love simon which is super idyllic but there is that reality of the conflict between the parents And the father embraces that early on. And even when the mother shows up to the meeting for her first time, she really struggles. She thinks everyone is judging her for not coming around to accepting her son soon enough in, in, in her mind. Throughout the first season, I mentioned Victor sort of exploring his sexuality. And he one of the things that's kind of holding him back is that he worries about telling his father he's gay because, you know, Armando makes some homophobic jokes, you know, with the grandfather at one point. He criticizes Victor's younger brother, Adrian, for playing with what he deems girl toys, like, oh, you let him play with these girl toys kind of thing. That That's a conversation between the father and the grandfather as well. According to an article by Erica Giabad entitled Love Victor's Armando Salazar, Queer TV's Father of the Year, written for the Latinx Project, Armando's reaction was a refreshing change of pace, and I completely agree. You know, Abad states, within the context of the significant role of parental support in coming out and the responses of other Latinx straight characters to their queer children on other television shows, Armando Salazar's flawed, fearful, yet supportive response and emotional struggle disrupts machismo and the racialized homophobia often depicted across a racially diverse ensemble cast featuring queer Latinos. I don't know, this shows to me anyway that his... Well, his reaction is far from the idealized reaction that we get from Simon's mother in the film and even more complex than what we see from Simon's father. His journey is one that breaks from the story that we've seen multiple times in the past, right? The Latino father is not accepting of their child's sexuality. As you mentioned, the same uh, actor play uh, uh, that type of character in yeah, One Day at a Time. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Redemption, absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, and I think this is really a great opportunity to have something shown like this in, in a television program. It's, it's a great opportunity for queer Latinx youth to see that they might also find support in their family, right, where, where there's that fear. And even more importantly, I think it gives Latinx parents a healthy example of how they might react to learning that one of their children is queer, right? It's going to be a shock, most likely, And you're, you will probably react imperfectly. I mean, this is a, any parent, I think. <laughs> you, you might react imperfectly, but it, 
it shows that at least for yeah families that are very patriarchal yes and and giving that opportunity to change the narrative so i really i really like armando's story you know again he's imperfect but he does go on this journey and is supportive of his son and perhaps it's more, again it's more nuanced than in the uh, film that inspired the show right yeah i mean just by default alone, having multiple seasons to develop the character really helps that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the benefit of television. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and I think we get a similar thing with Victor's mother through this time through the lens of religion. You know, like having a story where both parents accept their queer child immediately might seem like a great idea. Like, oh, yay, happy, everybody's sunshine and rainbows. It's perhaps a little less realistic for some teens. And so having this alternative story from what we see in Love, Simon is really important. So this is where Isabel, Victor's mother's reaction comes in. Well, Armando's reaction may break from the machista stereotype that audiences might anticipate, Isabel's plays into that sort of religious stereotype and the religious beliefs that may cause some family members to struggle with their queer teen coming out. Again, I think this is an interesting thing. I'm going to bring it back to one day at a time real quick because we get Lydia, the the grandmother figure in that show, accepting Elena within like a minute of, of narrative, right? <laughs> she goes through this whole process of like, oh, it's wrong, but oh, wait, who am I to question God, right? So we see that religion can sometimes be a barrier to acceptance in Love, Victor, whereas in One Day at a Time, it was kind of like, okay, it's cool. Like, I just followed this thought process. Again, neither one is right or wrong. It's just important to show different perspectives on that. I think Isabel's journey to acceptance is relatively believable. She takes her faith seriously, but she doesn't become a full-on villain through her religion, which is also important. It may seem like she's teetering kind of close to the edge with villainy at one point, but I would definitely argue she doesn't ever really cross that line. And she does what a lot of people of faith would do, right? She seeks advice and counsel from her priest. And while this is only one example of a response that might be heard by a Catholic priest, it is an important one because it reaffirms Isabel's concerns for her son. Father Lawrence says, you're right to express your disapproval if you want Victor to know God's love. So like initially that, that whole comment is like, yes, it is right to disapprove. Yeah, he's co coherent with Catholicism. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and Isabel accepts this at first because this is the faith that she grew up in, right? But later on, she learns that the priest has told her younger son, Adrian, that Victor is a sinner for being gay. And she starts to recognize that, you know, these beliefs are, are ugly beliefs. They're harmful. According to a 2007 survey, it's a little bit old, but um, by the Pew Hispanic Center and Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, more than two-thirds of Latinos, 68%, identify themselves as Roman Catholics. The Catholic Church's position on homosexuality is based on the distinction between being lesbian or gay and acting on it. So they accept the former, like, okay, it's okay if you're a lesbian or if you're gay, but it is not okay it is wrong. It is sinful to act on that. Yeah. So you need to be you, in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So about halfway through the second season and Victor came out at the end of the first season, Isabel acknowledges that she's not doing enough to accept her son. She wants to do better. She she explains, you know, from a very young age, I was taught that being gay was shameful. But she wants to distance herself from those ideas. She admits it's going to be a struggle because, as she says, these things that I was taught when I was younger, they are so ingrained in me. So I think that's important to acknowledge as well, right? It's not easy to necessarily snap to a different belief. When she says uh, thought and uh, I was thought that being gay was shameful, uh, uh, does she get into that, into the social climate that brings that uh, homophobia or she just like mentioned that? Yeah, I think it's it's not delved into too deeply. There's like a, a little conversation that she has with Victor and through that is kind of acknowledging that some of these things that she came up with may have led her to these beliefs and that it's not just the church, but it's also the cultural system mm -hmm, as well. Mm -hmm. But she doesn't delve into it too deeply. Okay. 
So, you know, we can see that through this example of Isabel that it's more than for Victor. Like the religion part seems to be a complication for her more than for him. Because a lot of people, maybe that part of that 68% identifying as Roman Catholic will be like, yeah, I am, but am I practicing or am I, you know, like yeah. how much of it am I believing or how much of it is just... And what about Victor? Does he go to, he keeps going to church? Or, yeah, so or, his mother yeah. finds another church that says like, mm -hmm. we welcome all. And she says that's, um, that's Christian for like, you know gays are okay or whatever um okay. and uh they do start attending this other church there's a moment where victor steps away from the church altogether but in the third season he actually goes to his mom and says hey can i come to church with you you know and and wants to find a spiritual connection again which is really so the show shows that also there's support on that area yeah yes. spiritual support yeah. yes yeah they from find... the, a different type of institution but nonetheless from a religious institution yes another another christian church of mm -hmm. of one kind yeah and this is of course just one example of how the church might play a role in whether or not latinx parents are open to their child coming out and we do need to be careful about generalizations of course But it is an interesting contrast with the reaction of Victor's father, Armando, right? There are also many priests, nuns, and other religious leaders who do work to reconcile the relationship between LGBTQ Catholics and their families and the church. So this scenario is not like a given, but it is, it's not shocking either, right? It's, it's. It's very common. Yeah, yeah. no one is no one is surprised when the church isn't yeah, that, supportive. That's a stand of a figure from the church. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, real quick on the siblings, you know, I just want to mention both his siblings when they learn about him being gay are just like, uh, okay, and then like they move on. Like it's just like, okay, that's a thing about you. You, you like your favorite color is blue. You like men, so like in a way. The the show uh, present this uh, homophobia as, as a generational gap, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a big part of it as well. And I think there is some truth to that in general. Although, again, just like with the religion, it's not a blanket. Mm -hmm. Of course. So just to wrap up, I want to talk a bit about how Love Victor sort of plays it safe. Well, Love, Victor provides viewers with a more complex and complicated story than Love, Simon did, it, it does still play it pretty safe, right? In response to the criticism of its predecessor, it does give us a non-white gay protagonist. And in the end of se the second season and the, the full third season, it does give us a gay Iranian Muslim boy who comes out to his family. And it gives us lesbian and bisexual female characters, both who are white. And, and so they... It, they do sort of try and build off of the like, he's the lone gay guy in the school, <laughs> like, you know, which when you're not out can very much feel like the truth. But once you are out and open, you maybe are more likely to find communities that support that. Do we have any Afro-Latinx uh, Afro uh, actor character in the in the show? No, I really Victor's family is is the only like nuanced latinx character representation that we have like mm -hmm. there there are other latinos in the school but no we don't have like like an afro-latina like yeah they don't really delve into that as much it's like little sprinkles of yeah of each type of representation but you know i also don't feel like it's overly pandering in that sense which is a risk that people take when they're like oh well There's the the gay Latino, there's the the gay, you know, Iranian Muslim, whatever, you know, fill in the blank, check off the box. I don't think it, it doesn't really do that either. Yeah, it's more like uh, queer people of color. Yeah. Right? It's like this idea of also Latinidad's brownness instead of something like more uh, complex or, or a spectrum that could be like more layer, right? <laughs> Racially speaking. Yes. You know? And and Rahim, the the Iranian Muslim boy, you know, at one point he even says to Victor, like, hey, Benji, the white gay kid, like, he doesn't get it because he's not like us. You know, he's not brown or black. Mm -hmm. He is white. He is wealthy. He is privileged. He doesn't have to worry about being a child of immigrants. You know, all of those factors are, are privileges that Benji, the white Uh, love interest holds mm -hmm. that Victor and Rahim do not. 
you know, I do think that the the intersectional queer representation is a step in the right direction, but the queer identities, as we were just talking about, are still a bit limited. They're all cis characters, and they're mostly straight passing. Victor himself, while having some struggles that Simon did not face, he also seems to have it pretty good here. You know, um, he's confident, he's charming, he's athletic, and he, like Simon, as I mentioned, is straight passing. You know, he may be the new kid, but he immediately gets in with the popular crowd and he starts dating the prettiest girl, Mia, in his class, like, while he's figuring out sexuality. He lands on the, the varsity basketball team right away. Like, things are coming up great for Victor, you know? He is from a working class family, but he never seems out of place next to his upper middle class peers. And he even somehow manages to, like, elevate Felix, who's known as, like, the weird kid at school. He kind of elevates him in popularity status throughout the series. Which, you know, some kids just need to be given a chance. But there is an element of this show playing it safe. But sometimes I think you just want a happy story. And not everything has to be, like deep and profound and and connected to traumas. Love Victor, while it's not perfect, it does tackle some of the important intersections that were missing in Love, Simon, while still maintaining a light air of a story that would eventually, after three seasons, give us a sort of happily ever after. So let's get into the second segment of the of today's episode. Yeah. Uh, today I'm going to be talking about the film The Garden Left Behind. I want to start, I already like at the beginning, I already talked about like kind of like uh, gave a uh, listener uh, uh, a glimpse of the uh, plot wise. Yeah. yeah. A glimpse of what happens in the film. But I want also to talk a little bit about production because I feel like uh, this particular film, what happens, yeah, behind the camera is also very important. Yeah. In terms of production, this uh, award winning film features an authentic cast with transgender actors in trans roles and Latinx performers in Latinx roles. Gasp. Yes. I, like, <laughs> very, shock. This is very important. <laughs> it right? is. The, the fact that this is happening in this film is extremely important. Yeah. The same happens behind the camera as the production team collaborated with the Trans Filmmakers Project among other film and LGBTQ plus organizations. Yeah. Love it. Even though the screenplay was developed and written by Brazilian director Flavio Alves and John Rotondo, two queer cisgender men, they engage in timely research. Another important element. <laughs> yeah, I'm very, yeah, that's very needed. Yeah, yes. In, in our media scape. Stop just making up stories. Do your yeah. research. Yeah. <laughs> Alba says in the press kit that, and I'm going to quote him, in order to write the script, we interviewed trans women and men from many different backgrounds. In order to do the story justice, we met with more than 30 trans-led organizations with hopes of including their concerns about the fictional story we were building. It was important that we do our due diligence by listening to and incorporating the narratives that the trans community then self-provided to us. Uh, end of quote. Yeah, I honestly just even acknowledging that alone gives me more confidence in going into watching a film like this. It's like, okay, they they took the time. They didn't just make things up and they care that the story that they're telling is accurate, even if it's not something they identify with, because I don't think you need to be a member of the community to necessarily tell a story that involves that community right but you do have to do your research there's definitely some responsibilities and Absolutely. they're acknowledging that and that is a very important yeah a step right as you were saying in the right direction i want to also like to bring another voice yeah into okay. the mix yeah i want to bring a critic film critic monica castillo's argument into into uh today's episode uh, she wrote in the roger ebert uh website that clearly Albus and Rotondo mean well and want to amplify the struggles facing the transgender community. Yet, Castillo says also that the film is an interesting case study on the shortcomings of Alice. Mm. Yeah. Uh, end of quote. Especially regarding its overwhelming attention plot wife to transphobic abusers, violence, and tragedy. And I wonder if we could say the same thing regarding the hierarchies of production. 
Mm. In the end, I also asked myself to what extent this film would have been different if directed by a trans woman. It's a great question. You know, like, yeah, as I mentioned, I don't think you have to be a part of that community, but there are certain things that you just will never connect with, right? As for myself as a non-Latina, like there are things that I can never know because I don't experience them. And I can do my research and I can ask the community and I can get those voices, but I I may fall short, yeah. you know, and, and I can see where she might come from that angle. And, and if we had a, a trans director, I mean... Hey, let's get some trans directors. <laughs> well, you said there's great representation behind the camera, but that doesn't. In That's this what case... I talked about, like the hierarchies of production. Yes, yeah? it's, it's good to have like uh, uh, technicians, yeah, behind mm -hmm. the camera who are trans, who are queer, right? But also like we need trans director, right? Yeah, uh, trans men and trans women directors, right? Trans men and trans women producers, right? Absolutely. So, so it's more like a, a questions that uh, it's not only for this film, but it's for the whole industry, right? Absolutely. But having said that, I agree also with Castillo that the movie does a good job presenting Tina as a nuanced intersectional character. Her life on the screen allows us to think about different interconnected Latinx and queer facets. It gives audiences significant entry points into the reduced possibilities of social, economic, gender, and sexual stability as a marginalized, minoritized person. And that applies to the film industry as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. The film is centered on a person who is dealing with the toll of being a caretaker and her journey to carve and occupy spaces for herself and her group. Tina must care for her aging and linguistically ostracized grandmother who only speaks Spanish and longs to return to Mexico. She must care for a problematic boyfriend that experiences Ugh. shame and wants a closet relationship, and even for a community that deals with violence on a daily basis. All of this as an undocumented worker, as a Mexican person in hostile city institution, and as a racialized trans woman in New York City streets. There's so many... Uh, intersections here just within this one character let alone the the characters that she interacts with but what I really appreciated from this film is that she she's shown in that domestic setting she's shown in a social setting with friends she's shown in and so it's not that she can only be one thing and and that's that's the best way to develop a character like Tina So that uh, takes me to another aspect that I wanted to highlight is how the film presents the right to pleasure, joy, and love for trans people. Mm -hmm. Black feminist critic Bell Hooks uh, thinks of marginality as a space that offers much more than deprivation. Instead, she explains it is a, and I quote, I'm going to quote her, central location for the production of a counter-hegemonic discourse that is not just found in words, but in habits of being and the way one lives, end of quote. Yeah, so it's uh, for her, it's also about, not only about what you say or the way you say it, but also how you live your life, right? And that is something that the film puts a lot of attention on. Yeah, right? absolutely, it does. By describing a very, by presenting a very quotidian uh, character. Yeah, it's just Tina in her daily life. This mm -hmm. is what's happening. Yeah. Something that I appreciate from the film is how it dedicates time on screen to show Tina's self-care habits. There are many scenes in which we see her taking a break from her taxi driver duties. She usually stops her car at a spot where she can just gaze at the river. These are contemplative moments that signal a rich interior life. There's no big actions or even dialogue. She's just being herself, standing or sitting, eating, breathing. And and um, something that I noticed when we were watching, my husband and I were watching the film, he pointed out to me is that there's not a lot of music even in that first half of the film. And these are a lot of the moments where we do see her stopping and sitting and thinking. And so it gives us a moment to reflect along with her, which I really appreciated. Yeah, that's a, a great observation. Also how the the sound or the lack of sound design can help enhance those moments, mm -hmm. right? There are also scenes of sexual intimacy and openness between Tina and her boyfriend that reinforce the idea of trans love being beautiful and fulfilling. However, 
I must note that for Tina's boyfriend, this intimacy is something to keep hidden. His affirming love for Tina only happens in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. As soon as he's outside, he mistreats her. This subplot uh, leads to questions and answers regarding trans liberation from an intimate point of view. It's interesting, too, because in the film, we do see them out to dinner in public. And, you know, Tina, of course, like calls it out. She's like, hey, you know, it's nice to actually be out in public with you and so on. And even when they walk down the street and the she's being harassed and uh, by the young men on the street, he seems to ignore it. He doesn't say anything to challenge them, but he doesn't necessarily like cower away. So like at, at first I was like, oh, maybe he's actually like really supportive. But as as it evolves, we understand that that support is very conditional. Yeah, definitely. It's like uh, it, it should happen, but it should happen at closed doors. Yeah, that's that's his his take. Mm -hmm. Another significant thing that I didn't mention before is that the movie also focuses on Tina's group of black and brown trans friends, yeah, and the way they support each other with daily and medical advice, but also as an emerging activist group against police brutality and transphobia. Before discussing activism, another point that I want to uh, bring today, I would also like to highlight how also the scenes in which the group of friends are hanging out, celebrating Tina's birthday or their accomplishment uh, in the different protests mm -hmm. and having a dinner party or a drink. Yeah, these sequences where no big statements are pronounced or drama is displaced are very joyous and once again give the viewer a glimpse of the everyday, every night of these characters. Although for La Abuela, the garden referred to in the title is her motherland Mexico, her diasporic desire, I think that these moments of communion could be read as other iteration of the garden. Oh, yeah. And there's even a scene in which she's with one of her friends in a physical garden, yeah. right? Like that, it, it's quite literally uh, a garden. And yeah, the garden is this place where things grow, where things flourish. And these relationships that she has with her friends it's the thing that helps her flourish and grow herself, right? They support her, but they also won't just like, you know, when her boyfriend's being a jerk, they they tell her, you know, they they weed They're the garden. They're very honest. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And just like a garden is not one flower, it presents like the garden is also the community. Yeah. yeah for their grandmother is Mexico also as a community. Right, because that's her community. She doesn't feel, at least from what we see in the film, it doesn't seem like she has a community in New York. Yeah, she's very dependent on Tina. Yes. In a way, I will argue that they're more effective. These scenes in which the community gathers, right, are more effective at presenting the concept of trans life matters than the more emphatic activist-focused scenes. However, granted, I think these are important too because it proposes political agency on a larger scale as well. Their claim thus becomes the claim of the city. I like that, yeah. Now I would like to talk about actually about the uh, trans activism presented in the sure. film, right? And this black activism happens against yeah everyday violence and transphobia. The screenwriting team mentioned that they interviewed several trans women who helped them to shape Tina's storyline, as I mentioned before. Yep. They acknowledged that the transgender experience is different for everyone, something that is very important that they acknowledge that. Yes. But they say that nearly every person they interview had experienced some sort of violence, including physical, verbal, and emotional. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, if they're talking about every person that they interacted with mentioning that... I can understand why they would think that it was something that was maybe pertinent to include in her storyline. Whether we agree or not as viewers is another question. But, you know, again, if they're trying to listen to those voices, I can see where they would have come from with that. Yeah, usually these are all instances of invisibilized violence. Something yes. that the media is not covering for the most part. Oh, exactly. You know, even when we see the media covering their protests in the film, the, the way in which it is done is sort of, I don't know if dismissive is the right word, but it's kind of like... Uh, to some extent, yeah. Minimalized, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, minimalized, right? Clearly, one of the goals of the movie is to raise awareness uh, of the frequent violence against trans people and some possible tools to combat it. Yep. 
Trans-organizing and activism are conceived of as an important step toward achieving social justice. It is also a way to promote community, trans pride, and even channel a voice that could speak about interconnected issues. For instance, although the protests in the film start because of an incident of police, uh, police brutality against a trans woman, viewers soon notice that the protesters go beyond this particular case. Right. By using social media and putting their bodies on the line, the activist group trace the connections between trans and queer phobia, systemic racism, anti-blackness, patriarchal oppression, and thanks to Tina and other Latinx people in the group, the issue of immigration reform and the mistreatment and criminalization of Latin American migrants, refugees, and the undocumented. That's a lot for, you know, a film that's an hour and a half to sort of wrap into these protest scenes. And so while they might not delve into it overly deeply, there is acknowledgement of, of all of these things and the ways in which they intersect. I think that is very well portrayed in these protest scenes. Yeah, one beautiful thing about the film is how Tina shifts from a somewhat isolated trans woman to an active participant in a movement. Mm -hmm. She was very reluctant to engage in the protests early on, you know, when her friends invited. She's like, well, I'm not really good at that kind of thing, you know. And then she just shows up to a meeting and kind of listens in. And and from that, she understands, like, I can't ignore this. You know, I, I th that's the impression I got while watching yeah. her. Yeah, uh, what you said that uh, she like uh, spends some time listening, yeah, looking at what is happening, allows her to find her voice within the movement, which is really great, something really great about the film. I would have loved that the ending of the film put an emphasis on this transformation over transphobic destruction, uh, something that we, we see time and time again, time and time again. And that we can like uh, uh, engage in conversation. Yeah, um, and actually, I'm kind of curious your thoughts on that ending because you know you watch the scene; it's a very violent ending scene. Um, I mean, the very end is the the abuela and and the ticket and all of that, but but really the the, the trans violence. The last sequences of the film are very violent. Very violent, and I'm kind of curious, you know, your thoughts on on that ending in that like you know you say you would have preferred putting emphasis on transformation but that's not what we got right and why do you think they went that direction like what what was what was your take on on that type of ending yeah i feel that uh also like looking at the interview that i i, I quoted from mm -hmm. yeah i feel that the filmmakers and what the critic monica was also like saying that the 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 filmmakers really wanted to express how the trans community is being affected by daily violence mm -hmm. and how this daily violence is not something minor it's something that it's really destructive and and their goal Clearly, yeah, if you analyze the film, their, their goal clearly is to depict this violence as a way to denounce it. Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes that makes sense. Like, it definitely is a denouncing of of that violence at the end, especially because it then cuts to the abuela learning, you know, what happened to Tina and, you know, her breakdown as well. I also found it interesting that, you know, the... The man who commits the the hate crime, who is so violent towards Tina, you know, we don't see any justice for the fact that he committed these crimes. And I in think a that's very, important in a, in too. a way. In a way, that's very realistic. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. Most uh, crimes against trans women stay unresolved. Yeah, and so I think there is some reality in that too. Sometimes we want a positive story, but sometimes the reality. It just is there. Uh, yeah, it's, it was uh, the film kind of gives you that reality, uh, uh, reality clash. Yeah, at the end. Yeah, it's, uh, this is are these are all the. It's very hopeful to a certain extent, but then it gives you the reality clash of violence against trans people, mm -hmm. right? And how that kind of like destroys, yeah, the, the the hopes and the the possibilities of a fruitful life for many trans people. But at the very least, it's a film that gets the conversation started. You know, like we, I know when my husband and I watched it, we had 
a full conversation about the story and the types of portrayals that are being put on the screen and how that has changed throughout time and film. Yeah. Another thing that it, it shows, yeah, but because uh, the, the the film is based in New York City, right? It's like uh, many times we think of New York City as a uh, this very like liberal city, uh, where queer people feel accepted, and to some extent that's true, yeah. But also by presenting this violence in New York City, you also see that there's patriarchal violence, yeah, transphobia. It's everywhere, right? I think that's a great point to bring up because there is an episode in Love, Victor, you know, as a way to tie these two works together. There is an episode in the first season of Love, Victor, in which he travels to New York and finds Simon and, well, Simon's boyfriend mostly, but I think Simon makes an appearance as well. And he does find that open, accepting queer New York, right? Like he he goes and meets... Bram, Bram is the Simon's boyfriend in this, in the film and in the show, goes and meets Bram and Bram's roommates and they're non-binary and they're trans and they're queer. And it's like, wow, this is like the beautiful utopia. And I mean, they do acknowledge that that's not 100% true, but they do very little in terms of showing that. The film, on the other hand, goes full into, you in know. That sense is more connected to Poe's. Yeah, because Poe's like present the possibility of community, the possibility of vibrant performing uh, spaces, but at the same time it presents yeah queer phobia in many different ways, and even queer phobia and transphobia coming from the queer community. Yeah. So in 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 that sense, the film The Garden Left Behind is more in sync with what Poe's proposes. Yeah, yeah, I I see. You know, like Pose was the first show that came to mind when I thought of like queer representation but we'd already discussed it in a previous episode so i i went looking for something different but i'm still fascinated that i could find something that that pulls in new york almost as its own character and shows the character in such a distinct manner than the film that that you shared with us does but really in the end i was kind of pleased that the work that I chose was so distinct from what you did because I think it really emphasizes that need for telling different stories. We we mentioned this in terms of the, the trans stories that have been told throughout time have very much focused in trauma and violence. And this, while it does it to some extent, isn't the core element to the film, right? We need to have different stories told and Love, Victor and The Garden Left Behind are very different stories and that's good. <laughs> yeah, it seems like also like uh, even like Love, Victor in itself was reflecting on that, on the importance of telling different stories and uh, also like telling queer stories beyond whiteness, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, it seems to me that, that Love, Victor is, is trying to do that work of telling queer stories from different point of view, not only racially, but also ethnically speaking. But it's doing so within the confines of pop culture. And a pop culture, of yeah, course, definitely. is a capitalistic driven mm -hmm, medium. Definitely. But I think we need to have both of those because without those sort of pop stories, there are many people who won't be exposed to whether it's the stories that came before or the stories that are coming out now, because this this film and the show came out approximately at the same time, mm -hmm. that a pop culture can serve as sort of a gateway into seeing some of these more realistic, mm -hmm. research, historically driven narratives like the film. Yeah, different degrees of visibility, yeah. Uh, probably The Garden Left Behind was seen by the people interested in the film festival circuit, right? And those people like really interested in, in Latinx cinema, but probably the audience is less than the audience of uh, a show like uh, Love Bitter. But in, the, in today's world of streaming, television and film you know you watch a show like love victor it's gonna be like oh here are some other latino shows or here are some other queer shows and movies and and so maybe eventually it will get someone involved and invested enough to go searching beyond just that realm and and to be fair you know love victor is as pop culture 
is something that is also meant to cater to that wider audience, like you said, and wider and whiter audience as well. I think that's important to acknowledge that it's bringing in white viewers who were like, oh, love Simon. That was great. Let me check this out. Oh, hey, I'm learning something new. Mm-hmm. And there's like a tiny push of the envelope, but not much. Whereas the film really pushes the envelope. Also, the fact that it includes yeah trans actors, yeah trans activists, real trans activists as well, and trans organization within the production dynamics, it tells you that this is a film that is talking with the community, but also the members of the community are part of of this film. So it's scattered to them in many ways. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that's... That gives you also like an idea of the, the audience that they were like tapping, you know, that were searching for, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The, it feels like the film was searching for the trans uh, community as an audience. Yeah, yeah. Not, not all things are made for all audiences, but all audiences need to have some sort of content and, and having these different approaches to telling stories you know hey what i'd like to see now is a trans latinx story in television as well with a main character not just a side character (laughs) (laughs) all right so we wanted to to wrap up with a couple recommendations you know if you haven't watched either the film or the show that we discussed already we do encourage you to do that but here are a couple others that you might be interested in yeah, so I'm going to be recommending a film, and this film uh, is called Before Night Falls, mm-hmm. I'm reluctant, actually, about this recommendation, uh, mostly because of its production decisions. Okay. Yeah, but here it is. Uh, Before Night Falls is a somewhat solid choice if you are interested in the clashes between revolutionary ideology, literature, censorship, and queerness. The film was released in the year 2000 and it was directed by U.S. painter and filmmaker Julian Schnabel, who so far specializes in biopics of marginalized male artists, such as Jean-Michel Basquiat or Vincent Van Gogh. Before Nightfall offers viewers a visually well-composed journey into the life and writings of critically celebrated gay Cuban author Reynaldo Arenas. The film is a biopic, so it spans the holes of Arena's life from his rural childhood and his early embrace of the revolution to the persecution and torture he would later experience as a writer and homosexual in revolutionary Cuba. Mm-hmm. The last section of the film explores exiles, statelessness, and broken Cubanidad in the U.S. as it looks at Arena's departure from Cuba in the Mariel Harbor exodus of uh, 1980 to New York City until his AIDS-related death in the 90s. Yep. In my opinion, the movie is fantastic when it uses Arena's writing, his Antes Canosceska, in montages that combine lush poetic images and archival material. However, the film could use more nuances and explore gray areas politically speaking. The film's central argument is how repressive and paranoid the revolution is, but it doesn't go beyond that statement. Yeah. It focuses is Cuba's coloniality. In other words, it looks at the reestablishment of gender and sexual hierarchies inherited through colonialism. It is also a movie that displays a biased U.S. film machinery over authenticity and successful representation. The film could have been more potent in Spanish with subtitle, Something that the production briefly explore in two yeah. scenes. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I think that's something that we're getting better at now. You know, I yeah. think it took like, like twenty or or, or 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 more years. Yeah, no. because we're not there yet. But it's yeah, definitely working improving. There. Yeah, the, the the garden left behind. I mean, when Tina is speaking to her grandmother, it is in Spanish, which is natural and logical. But when she's speaking to her friends, that are, you know in the community she's speaking in english that yeah. that makes more sense to me yeah. yeah yeah and we have shows like uh narcos who are like for the most part in spanish right and mm-hmm. uh, and others yeah, yeah that yeah. are coming up these days that are more like accurate uh linguistically speaking social linguistically speaking yes yeah 
Another thing that could have been better, yeah, in the film is actually casting Cuban actors in the main roles, <laughs> yeah. Even if El Español Javier Bandera is great in the main role, right? Uh, he's such a great actor, but nonetheless, yeah, there's so many, like, great Cuban actors that could have played yeah. Reinaldo Arenas that one wonders, right? And again, like, going back to the whole, like, do you have to be something to, like, create something? The same question can be asked here. However... However, by them being Spanish and not being Latin American or not being Caribeño, that's a difference because he is from the colonizing country, right? That's the distinction here, that if you had a Puerto Rican playing a Cuban, there's a closer understanding of the history behind those experiences that can, can help bring more, a greater level of authenticity to the role. Yeah. And that it's part of that tradition of having like actors such as Al Pacino playing a Cuban, right? Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> in Scarface and in yeah, Car so many Spanish actors <laughs> playing Latino roles or or Italian actors. Yeah, Italian American actors. Yeah, but uh, when are we gonna let Cuban actors play themselves? Right? right. Yeah. The same thing happens. Yeah, with uh, a trans character Bonbon, who is played by Johnny Depp. Yeah. Right. Uh, and these are just like some examples of how the films kind of like centralizes, yeah, people outside of the community in the main roles. And then the Cuban actors are only like playing extras or mm -hmm. minor supportive characters. And obviously, a big part of that is an issue with the production, with the producers, the money men, the, the money people, you know, th those who, who have that power and saying, oh, well, we need to cater to such and such audiences if we're going to make money. You know, Bardem has had success in film X, Y, and Z. Let's use him instead of looking for new, fresh voices and, yeah, and taking a risk. That's what I like about The Garden Left Behind, that it's uh, brave enough to actually, like, uh, center and have uh, trans actors in the main roles. Yes. Right. Yet, an exploration of Arena's uh, legacy is always welcome, and the topics that emerge by examining his figure are still deeply relevant. So I'm going to recommend a show. It's a Well, I guess it got renewed for a second season, so it's more than just a short series, but it seemed like it could have been a one-off. It's another Gloria Calderon-Kellett show, right? For those who aren't familiar, she was the showrunner on One Day at a Time that we covered back in season one. And with love follows a large multi-generational Cuban-Mexican-American family living in Oregon. I like that off the bat because it's not like, oh, New York, Miami, California. Like, it's somewhere else. Not your else. usual uh, <laughs> uh, Latino city. And, and this right. is where Calderon Kellett actually grew up herself. The show has five episodes and it was released in December 2021 on Amazon Prime. It's a romantic comedy series, and while it addresses the relationships of various couples, there are two specific LGBTQIA plus pairings in the show. The first is between Jorge Jr., a gay Latinx man, and Vincent, a bisexual Filipino man. And the second is between Sol, a gender nonconforming Afro-Latinx trans femme oncologist, and Miles, a fellow doctor and single white father of a non-binary child. Because it's a romantic comedy, there's definitely a happily ever after vibe to the show. Sometimes you just need those. And I think especially in like 2020 to 2022, like we've really like I personally have been craving some positive stories, <laughs> but it does it does sort of give us that happily ever after vibe to the show and, and to these relationships in particular. Right. They're not over sexualized. The characters are accepted by their family with love and support. They have moments of angst, but all in all, it gives a feeling of like almost a Hallmark type series, but with characters who are not just white or exclusively heterosexual. <laughs> but it also does this in a way that I would say does not come across as pandering, right? It's very, you know, we mentioned it before, this idea of like a checklist of diversity. Oh, I need one of these characters, one of those characters. With Love doesn't give you that idea, that vibe of pandering to a checkbox. It's just that these are who the characters are and this is how they are and how they exist with their family. So, you know, it's a if you're looking for a feel good multi-holiday series with a light commitment load, I would definitely encourage you to check out With Love. The, the five holidays that they cover in their first season are Noche Buena, New Year's Eve, Valentine's Day, Independence Day and Dia de los Muertos. So as you can see, it kind of takes place over the course of a year. 
And they do bring in those Latin American holidays as well, right? The Noche Buena, Dia de los Muertos. It's not exclusively for a white audience, <laughs> which is nice. Okay, so just to wrap things up, thanks for joining us for the first episode of our third season. Let us know what you thought about our coverage of these two works. Uh, we'd love to hear from you on the subject. Remember that you can always reach out to us on social media, follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Latin Exhibitions. You can also contact us by email. Our email address is latinexhibitions at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on both Apple and Spotify if you have the chance. Así que nos vemos, estamos a la escucha. Hasta la próxima. <laughs>